Well, thank you, Mary, for leading us in worship today. Will you pray with me? Still speaking, God, speak to us today and help us to hear your voice in a way that we can respond with our curiosity, with our concern, but with our faith as well and our devotion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of each and every heart be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our source of comfort and hope. Amen. So our gospel story is an, it's an intimate story. It's a personal story. It's six days before the great festival of Passover and, and family and friends have gathered. Jesus has often been in the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And he's gathered with his closest friends. And they must be looking forward to entering this great city again and joining in that celebration. But there's more going on as well. There's more going on. And so this, this story we hear is a, is a personal story, an intimate story uh, between friends, uh, those uh, who have traveled the road together, those who know each other deeply, those who trust one another, and yet we find some, some significant differences as well. This is a story I'm calling, How Much is Too Much? How Much is Too Much? It's a story about generosity. A story about gratitude. It's a story about Mary. Mary who is acting out of unbounded generosity. Generosity that's not constrained by, by any fears or by any pragmatism. She's asked, why are you wasting something so valuable? It could be sold and the money could be used to feed the poor. Mary, you're being so irrational. You're not being logical. How much is too much. Hmm. I share personal stories at times about the generosity, the humor, the, the courage of, of people in my own life or in my past. But I have to tell you, to be honest, I, I feel awkward talking in direct ways about myself. Now, maybe that's just the old Lutheran in me. You know, ministers aren't supposed to do that, talk about themselves. Partly, as I think, is because I'm on the spectrum. It's difficult for me. But I want to tell you a personal story, much like our gospel story, an intimate story a private, of a private journey that I've been on. <clears throat> and really, I've been on it really since about a month ago. Uh, a, month, a couple months ago when we finally decided to become a sanctuary church a sanctuary church, actually back last October. And I've often shared that when I learned that we were becoming a sanctuary church, eh, my feelings were mixed about it. Because, well, I'm the pastor. And it's my job to worry about the congregation. How would this impact our, 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 our unity as a faith community first and foremost? Would it, would it provoke some division within families and homes? Uh, could we cope with it? Would members decide to, to leave because they feel hurt, they feel unheard? Would communication and relationships break down? Would things happen that we'd have to struggle to recover from? How much is too much? To be honest, I, I wondered that. But the spirit moved and, and passions uh, were realized and, 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 and the good word was communicated and the ball got rolling and, and how we've spoken off and how people stepped up. 
and organize and problem solve and, and work through one, one concern and one conflict as they came up, how people contributed time and energy and gifts and, and all of it, all of it. And in the end, we received so much, so much more than we gave. Nothing was too much. But for, the, for me, this private journey that I'm going to share began about, well, it actually began a couple days before Angelica arrived. And I want to say thanks to Leslie for helping me remember all these details, putting them down. So I'm hopefully I can follow the story. Began a couple days before Angelica arrived, and a large group had, had organized around this effort. We were meeting the music room, and, and an immigration attorney named Joe Maz, I think, from Columbus Mennonite, joined us. And during that meeting, Joe stated, one, that he was not a criminal lawyer, but he was comfortable asserting that harboring an individual with an act of deportation order was indeed a felony. He went on to say that his knowledge, there were only a handful of clergy who ever been charged with that crime. That happened back in the 80s. But then he said, I'll be honest with you, though. When, when we first decided to do this, Reverend Joel, their minister, well, he started crying. He said, you know, he has two little girls, you know. <laughs> well, that's when it hit me. That was, that was the first step on this journey I'm describing for you today. Now, I didn't cry, and I, I didn't speak out of my fear, and, and I don't have responsibility for two little girls anymore. I mean, they're in their late 20s. But, and, I'm, and I'm not open that way either. But I have to tell you, when I went home that night, and for the next night as well, I didn't sleep too well. I didn't sleep at all, really. I mean, no amount of, well, Reverend Joel at Columbus Mennonite and Reverend Sally at First English did it ahead of me, and so I'm sure it'll be just fine. That wasn't working. That was not working. It was just not enough. So, so I wrote to our attorney, Mark Owens, and I asked him if he'd be willing to step back into the role of counsel for our church. He'd done that many times before, and he agreed. And I posed this question to him, what, what, what kind of risk are we taking, Mark? What are the legal implications? And I got this written reply. A declaration of sanctuary is a statement regarding faith and morality. It does not inoculate against potential legal consequences. Persons seeking sanctuary will have varying needs ranging from the easily met needs of food, shelter, medical assistance, or a job to those with immediate and serious legal problems, including outstanding federal or state arrest warrants. Now, none of this is intended to discourage North from offering sanctuary, he wrote, only to say that North should undertake a full discussion of the legal implications for the minister and for the congregation as a whole before proceeding. I read that and said, hmm. Hmm, now, that seems awfully impersonal and distant, even for Mark. So I picked up the phone on that first Saturday afternoon before we had that great congregational discernment gathering and, and spoke to Mark. And he was warm, and he was even humorous, but he was very clear. And I said, so, so I'm thinking the risk is actually very low, relatively large number, uh, 45, 50, uh, um, 
and he said, um, and I said, congregations nationwide have undertaken sanctuary and none have been arrested for 35 years, I've read. He says, yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. And churches remain protective spaces. It's a matter not of law, but of policy and precedent. So I said, so I should be fine, all's well, right? <laughs> and he replied, <laughs> with a bit of color in his voice, have you just met this administration? Honestly, I think everything's up for grabs and that assurances based on history and precedent are naive. But yes, yes, I have no reason for imminent concern about you or your church. And then I offered in a kind of lame final plea for a good night's sleep, you know, everyone in the congregation's offered to get arrested with me. And he said, well, that's nice. <laughs> that's nice. But <laughs> no one will have any interest in arresting them. If anyone's arrested, it will be you. In that scenario, you and Reverend Joel and Reverend Sally. But you would only be detained for a day or so. And I thought, why is that? And he said, because you have good lawyers. <laughs> And he chuckled. But I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to jail. How will I sleep without my CPAP machine? <laughs> and can I take my wedge? <laughs> and will they empty my pockets and take my Prilosec? <laughs> you know, you know, I felt very personal and not very assuring. It was not enough. Not enough. And then two days after we took Angelica into sanctuary, Sherrill Ann sent us an article from Faithful America reporting that the Trump administration was pursuing felony criminal charges against a group of Unitarian clergy. What were they doing? Providing water, food, socks, blankets, emergency aid to migrants along the U.S.-Mexico border. And more, I was forward reporting that another member of the Unitarian clergy was on trial for harboring two undocumented immigrants in her church. This time, it was Leslie who called Mark <laughs> and anxiously asked, how is this happening? How come nobody's writing about it? It was in the faithful America, for God's sake. We learned it from a member of our church. Why isn't the Times or the Post covering it? And Mark said... Bad lawyers. <laughs> when Eric goes on trial, he said, it'll be all over the news. <laughs> Why, he, he could be the interview on Rachel Maddow again. <laughs> he hasn't done that for 10 years. <laughs> oh, she said, this is not funny. <laughs> This is not funny. And then she said those words, you know, those, those words that go with those three little letters that teenagers post on Instagram, those, those words that go with the letters W-T-F. <laughs> and he said, Leslie, Leslie, things are changing. The administration is off the rails. It's going to go further off the rails before we work our way out of this. And I can't promise you anything, but I also have no particular reason to be concerned. 
Now, I have to confess that moment didn't really elevate our fear, but it deeply impacted me in a different kind of way. It was a personal brush on Leslie's and my part with a sobering reality that our nation has changed. It's changed and there's really, there's really no changing back, is there? Now I felt this was touching me, touching my family in a way that, that my privilege, my privilege that always insulated me from things was being eroded, was being threatening. My life was, well, I, I was personally disoriented. You know, sometimes we have to accept that enough is still a long way away. In December, we got an email from Mark out of the blue, and he said, please don't correspond electronically. We can clarify more effectively by phone. Oh, so I got on the phone and I called. And he explained that both Leslie's and my email are likely monitored by the Department of Homeland Security. And he wanted to be sure that no advice from the law offices of Loeb could be construed as aiding and abetting a crime. Now by then, in addition to being jarred, and I was also beginning to feel kind of, I don't know, oddly funny. Leslie said, wow, wow, they're monitoring us. So they're going to find out how much we argued about those William Morris wallpaper samples in our bathroom, right? <laughs> <laughs> and Mark laughed, <clears throat> and he said, uh, well, I didn't say that you were interesting. The problem is that Loeb is interesting to them, and we'd appreciate it if you didn't call any attention to us in that way. Oh, <laughs> oh, which raised Leslie's political antenna way up. <laughs> way up, and created this whole new problem in my life. I've learned that nothing, I mean, enough will never be enough. Enough will never be enough in this way. But on March 8th, about a month ago, I got an email from Mark with a link to an article entitled, Leaked Documents Show the U.S. Government Tracking Journalists and Immigration Advocates Through a Secret Database. The body simply said, I mean, the note simply said, call me when you have a minute. Well, I got a minute right away. <laughs> and I called Mark, and Mark opened with a joke. You know what that means, right? I've worked with enough attorneys that experience has taught me that when your lawyer opens with a joke, it's probably not going to go well. And so he said, um, so do you, do you and Leslie have any plans to leave the country and return before the next election? I thought, mm, I joked, but tried to joke back, said, no, 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 well, we can't afford that. And he said, well, good, good, good. Then you should be just fine. <laughs> oh, I then learned that all persons who are identified as immigration activists, including faith leaders of sanctuary churches, are on a kind of McCarthy-like blacklist. Mark had learned from the Central Council of the ACLU that the actual list is more extensive than has been reported. At the top of that list 
our attorneys, journalists, activists at the border who offer assistance to the migrant caravan. Persons at the top of that list have been targets of intense inspections by border officials, had some alerts placed on their passports. That was the joke I didn't get. Persons like me are at the bottom of the list, if they're on the list at all. But concern about my inclusion have been triggered by an association with those same persons who would come to my aid should I ever need them, the law office of Loeb and the ACLU. I found this, quite honestly, pretty chilling, pretty sobering, pretty troubling. And for several days it provoked an anxiety in me that didn't just rival, it exceeded the anxiety I felt when I first met Joe Mass all those weeks ago and heard, oh, you, you might be committing a crime. This, now this was deeply personal. This was, this was deeply private. You know, I've had, I've, I've, had, I've had to deal with fear. This was moral. This was about injustice. But this was deeply personal. Because we've been blessed with help from extremely gifted lawyers, people who've, who've taken real risks to, to help in this situation, people who are concerned about restoring the American democracy that I've always taken for granted. Now I am placed at risk. I am placed at risk. But I didn't do anything. I mean, ask anybody in my church. They say, their pa my pastor doesn't do anything. Right? I mean, I'm a kind, quiet, kind of rule-bound guy who tries to do the right thing. I mean, I, I care about those I love. I'm kind to others. My next thought was, oh, Love and kind to others, just like all those people seeking asylum. And all of a sudden, down was up, and in was out, and right action was met with injustice, and innocent was judged guilty, and now it was touching me. For no other reason than I have sought to follow my faith. How is this possible? How much is enough? How much is more than enough? Let me close this disclosure with a, with a confession. During this, this journey of sanctuary uh, that we celebrate, that we work on, uh, that we discern, uh, I've also struggled with some embarrassment. Because honestly, my life is not at risk. If I spend a single night in Franklin County Jail, only to be rescued by some of the best lawyers in the country, how does that compare with the experience that Angelica faced? The emotional trauma that has to be grappled with in the wake of the kind of journey she and many have taken. How does it compare with the exodus from Venezuela, which we learned this week exceeds the exodus from Syria, that exodus that touched Rachel and Juan Carlos so deeply, so personally in their lives? 
How does it compare with the flight of refugees from Central America? How does it compare to those asylum seekers from Mauritania? Actually, honestly, embarrassingly, joyously, we have had a We have had a successful outcome, a joyous successful outcome with our first sanctuary ministry. With a beautiful and resourceful family, with an amazing mom and dad and three wonderful children. And we'll soon be exploring the question of sanctuary in our future if we decide to proceed. And I'm sure we will. But I'm also sure that when we do, it'll be different. It'll certainly be different and probably more difficult. What can we learn from the example of Mary in our gospel story today? How will we bring different gifts to our discernment process? How will we balance pragmatism and problem solving with devotion and faith? It was both pragmatism and faith that resulted in the freedom of Angelica and her family. And some of the most skeptical people in our family of faith, from my experience, were the most strategic in our success. It was a time of both unity and paradox, struggle, reconciliation, speaking and listening, discerning, deciding, learning, and acting. Our plan, as always, as always, is never quite the same as God's plan. Am I right? All right. The season of Lent giving way to Easter is a paradox. From death to resurrection, from rage to forgiveness, from despair to renewed hope. In everything we do here, we grow. In everything we do here, we evolve. I believe we succeed because we approach one another in the spirit of Mary. But not all gifts have the scent of perfume, do they? We succeed when we recognize the gifts of others. However different they look from our own, have their own measure, their own worth, their own value. How will the gratitude and generosity of Mary be embodied here? Now, today, it is always generous to simply dive in, to have faith that God will give us everything we need. But can skepticism also be a form of generosity? Does seasoned generosity manifest in unexpected ways? Can we be generous in our pragmatism, in our insight, in our faith in the judgment of others? Can we listen generously, especially to persons with whom we disagree? Are our individual needs, our deep aspirations, are they more important, more faithful, more central than those of others? Will we bring judgment or will we bring gratitude to this next chapter? The season of Lent is giving way to Easter. There has been loss, and there is joy. 
We have accepted the departure of a family whom we loved under a pseudonym. And we delight in the arrival of a new family, new friends, free to love each other with their true and given names. We have been blessed in the spirit of Mary by unbounded generosity, by a love and gratitude that are without end. This is a time of uncertainty and a time of readiness as well. At this moment, we are standing vigil. How much is too much? How much is enough? What in this season of Lent, giving way to Easter, will be our guide, will be your guide. Thanks be to God. Amen.